that, open your Bibles up, if you'd be willing, <clears throat> to the book of James. And I want to present to you over the next 30 minutes a um, new study we began this last fall um, before we probably continue looking at Revelation. And uh, really been taken with the book of James. Um, a lot of things I did not understand about this book and how significant it was. Um, it's one of the more, of course, I guess we all think of this in the, in the material we're looking at, but um, you with me? Uh, it's one of the more significant letters in the New Testament uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, James is not one of the disciples. He was the brother of Jesus, and he was one of the most influential men in the early church. Um, being that he was the brother of Jesus, he was the, actually the half-brother of Jesus. Okay? Uh, they had different dads, obviously. Jesus' dad was God, and uh, you know, James' father was Joseph. Okay? But they had the same mom. And they grew up in the same household. Jesus was obviously the firstborn, so he's a little older than the secondborn, James. So James got all the hand-me-downs of, uh, of Jesus, you know, all the holy clothing and uh, <laughs> holes in the clothes. And, um, uh, you know, he, he watched him grow up, was in that environment. We learn a little bit about James and, and some of the, obviously, other members of the family, his, his mother and uh, in the Gospels. But something transitional takes place. Something obviously happens after the gospel account when James becomes um, not only a believer, but hear this, a leader in the early church. We learn in, in um, uh, you know, Acts 14, 15, and 16 that for the, a long period, most of the believers in the early church were Jews. Okay? But something happens as Acts moves along. you got this guy named Paul coming around, and, and Gentiles are beginning to be saved, and the church has to do something about that group of people. And uh, they have this big council in, in uh, Acts 15. James is a leading voice in that group. It's like they all look to him. And not only that, and you'd say, well, how did he get that position? He was pastor of the church in Jerusalem the first church in Jerusalem, which at this time was the most influential church on the face of the planet, okay? So what I'm telling you is this guy matters. What he says matters. Now, what makes this letter so significant is he's not writing this letter to his congregation. If you look at the introduction, which is in verse 1, at the end of the introduction, the greetings, he addresses this letter to the 12 tribes, again, before the main influx of Gentiles, mainly speaking to Jewish Christians, he says these are to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So this letter isn't written to his, his congregation. This letter is written to the global church of his day. Okay? And it had such significance and such widespread acceptance that it finds itself in our canon which of you understand all the disciples wrote letters. Not all of them were widely accepted because they didn't, you know, uh, in terms of an overarching uh, kind of uh, reach across the global church of that day, James did. Why? He's significant. What he says matters. And he's addressing the global church of his day. And what he's doing is he's clarifying the message. So when, what I want to do this week is we want to walk through uh, primarily the first 15 verses and how he begins this letter clarifying uh, the message of the gospel. He begins uh, in verses 2, 3, and 4, which make up the first opening section, and he introduces the subject of trials. Now, but right before this, 
James really kind of um, introduces the theme that's going to go through the book, which is the main topic of the message, what it means to be a believer. He calls himself a servant. And uh, one of the things that I, I uh, picked up immediately when I began to study the book of James, not just among friends and you know, colleagues, but um, the scholars, they all said James was a doing book. They agreed that James was very significant, writing to the global church of his day, clarifying the message, but they're all focused on, they seem to be all focused on what you have to do in order to be a Christian. And of course, anybody who's ever heard me preach before, uh, I don't believe Christianity is what you do. I believe you become a different person and therefore you do different things. That Christianity isn't just about quitting certain things in your life and starting to do other things in your life. Christianity is about God moving on the inside, and I am different. And therefore, I act differently. So I was immediately skeptical, skeptical about that observation of James, that it's a book of doing. But what's interesting is that the whole theme throughout the book of, of James is highlighted. It's, it's, it's saturated with servanthood. Not acts of service, but the nature of being a servant. It's the attitude of being a servant, which the whole, that word is very easy to study in our New Testament, used all, all the time. It's less about me and all about others. That this isn't about how it makes me feel. This isn't, there's no corner, there's no corner angle in my life. It's, it's how can I be used and how can I be used for your kingdom? And, and this is at the heart of, this is at the heart of what, of course, uh, we believe in this group, that Jesus preached uh, in his earthly ministry. He says, if you do not take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me, hey, you're not, you're not going to like me. You're not going to like the message because it's not, it's not about me. And if you want to follow me, it can't be about you. Now, with that theme, he begins at verse 2, and we're going to walk through uh, up to verse 4 this evening. And uh, let me read that for you. I'm reading out of the NIV, the 1984 NIV. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, we're going we're gonna to work backwards at first. I'm going to look with you at verse 4 and actually at the end of verse 4 because it is the culminating statement. Everything that he's saying, and it's, 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 it is really, he's been building in verse 2 and 3, uh, kind of this, and it's building up to the end of verse 4, and it tells you the motive of, of what, he's, what he's after, okay? He talks about trials, he talks about perseverance, and the purpose of those leads you to the end of verse 4, where he says that you may be mature and complete, comma, not lacking anything. Now, you're going to be very familiar with some Greek terminology this week, though that's not really the focus, but we know that English, or the Bible was not written in English. It was written in, you know, Greek, New Testament, Old Testament, Hebrew, which was then translated into the Greek. Uh, the early church used an entire Greek Bible. So what we're reading specifically in this verse is a translation of the Greek language. Follow me? Shake your heads. Okay. Now, this phrase that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, is the motivation. That's where, that's where he's leading. This is what God wants in your life, is what he says. 
mature and complete, not lacking anything. But mature and complete, comma, not lacking anything, these two phrases come from the exact same Greek phrase uh, in which it's translated. In other words, mature and complete is a translation of a Greek phrase. Not lacking anything is a translation from a Greek phrase. And the two Greek phrases are the same. Okay? He says, you may be mature and complete. Greek phrase. Then he says that exact same phrase again, and we translate it differently, not lacking anything. So he says the exact same thing twice. And what I found so funny is that both of those different translations, neither one of them's right. Okay? And I probably shouldn't say right. But neither one of them are literal. Okay? The literal translation of that Greek phrase that he uses back to back is not mature and complete, and it's not not lacking anything, which is somewhat appropriate. He literally says that God's desire, listen to this, God's desire for your life is not that you do the correct things, but again, as we've been talking about, but that you would be completely perfect, comma, being completely perfect. So he builds all the way through about trials, perseverance, so that it can finish its work. And what's the finished work? That you would be completely perfect, being completely perfect. Which means, and again, the emphasis, the description is on the person. You are to be completely perfect, not your actions completely perfect. Okay? You are to be mature and complete. You are to not lack anything, not your actions. So the emphasis, you follow me? See, the emphasis is not on how well you do something. The emphasis is on who you are that does that something. Got interested in this years ago. And after I begin, my eyes begin to be open to it, or at least I kind of knew what to look for, you see this everywhere. I spent about three years looking through just the seven churches, which was really pathetically a long time. But for about three years, we studied the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And one of the things that I found was remarkable, that when Jesus introduced himself to these churches that he's addressing, he never uses his name. He presents himself to the church, introduces himself to the church, but he doesn't use his name. Instead of using his name, he takes out words, uh, phrases, prophecies, and statements out of the Old Covenant, and he uses those to introduce himself. But when he does so, he never uses verb language. He uses noun language. One of the ones we're currently writing and put in book form is the church at Laodicea, which is a religious church. And when Jesus introduces himself to that church, he does so with four nouns. I know. Isn't that exciting? He uses four nouns to introduce himself. Now that's contrast because all that Laodicea, they're hanging their hopes on are the things that they're doing. And when Jesus comes, he's not, he's not, he doesn't use that language. It's not what, it's not what you do, it's who you are which rattles us because typically we don't talk like that. Been gone for five months. I show up at church. People come up to me and say, hey, how have you been? Doing. doing. <laughs> say, well, I've been doing. doing well. You doing okay in your walk? Oh, yeah. I'm doing great. Yeah. Started studying a new passage. Booked more revivals. Super ultra spiritual stuff going on in my life, <laughs> big time. And I do, I quote all the things that I'm doing. How, how have you been in that? Oh, yeah, well, and I haven't been 
doing these things. And I, <laughs> I'm not necessarily bad, but it, it's, I find it strange. That's not how they talked. That the goal for your life is not that you're doing things perfectly or how they come out, your actions. Those, it's who you are. In fact, the desire is that you be completely perfect, being completely perfect. So this is the goal. This is, the, this is where he's leading thus far uh, in verses 2, 3, and 4. So everything we're, we're going to talk about, and I want to say it first, because it's easy to get off track, okay? Everything he's talking about is that you would be different. You would be different. And again, I want to be careful on time, but I constantly meet people that used to know me. And the first response is normally, what? You're still alive. <laughs> I'm like, I know. <laughs> you know. And then we go through the how are you doing thing, and it's embarrassing, you know, because how do you respond to that? But... Um, we don't normally just pick up where we left off. And we don't have the same things in common. And, and oftentimes I, I fear they attribute that to lifestyle changes. It's not. I'm different. I'm different than the way that I used to be. I just don't function that way. Things I used to find funny, I don't find funny anymore. Things that excite me, I don't, I mean, they didn't used to excite me. I'm, I'm a different individual. Okay? This, this is the focus of his statement. Now he begins in verse 2. Okay, with that mindset, if you can hold on to that, with a command. <laughs> it's awesome. James it must have been a character. He is an extremely aggressive individual, which I wouldn't know what that's like. But, but James, being this extremely aggressive individual, he uses a variety of language, but the dominant language, scholars tell us in his book, is military language. Okay, Military. In fact, uh, in, in the Greek language, the strongest grammar they have for a command is the imperative mood verb, okay? It's the imperative mood. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mood of command. He uses, listen to this, in just barely over 100 verses, James uses, oh, James uses 50 imperatives, okay? You see, what does that mean? That means every other verse, he's going, hey, and barking at you, and veins popping out of his neck, spit flying out of his mouth. I mean, he's an aggressive intent. In other words, and I, I somewhat relate to that, because you're under the impression this matters to him. You know? This, I mean, this really matters to him. I mean, he's giving himself to this thing. And so he begins this statement. <laughs> the first word out of his mouth is, hey! I mean, just, I like him. Okay, it's, a, it's the first thing he says. He says, consider military command, strong command. And, and again, it's not just in the imperative mood. If you're into Greeky, geeky Greek stuff, it's the first word at the beginning of the sentence, which makes it even more pronounced. I can see that excites you. But, so he begins this by saying, consider it. And by the way, pure joy, which means this is exciting stuff, what you're going through, what you're facing. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. Now, in the body, among Christians, we, um, we talk about trials. You hear people talk about trials. You're at Revival. You're out in town. I don't know what your circus, your, your uh, circle of influence, which may be like a circus, but I don't know what your life is like, where you hang out. I hang out in church all the time. And you learn about people's life, and they ask you to pray, and the circumstances they're in, and they oftentimes are expressed in terms of trials that they are facing. Oh, we're facing trials. Do you know how many different Greek words are used to express trials, or one English word for trial in the New Testament? Seven. 
there are seven different Greek words that you can translate uh, trial in the New Testament. James is talking about one of those, which is important because most of us think, oh, I'm going through this trial, but, and James chapter 1 verse 2 says, I got to consider it pure joy, so I'm just going to smile and it's going to be great. Well, maybe, okay, maybe if you're talking about his trial, but you may not. It may not be talking, your situation may not fit this word trial. Let me give you a couple of them. Um, In Mark chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, verse 11 The word trial is used, and it describes a proper trial to prove guilt. If you get a speeding ticket, and you have to show up at the courthouse, okay, and you have to go under trial to prove guilt or innocence, okay, you do not have to be joyful about that, okay? Yeah, I got to go to the courthouse, but I got to be happy. Woohoo, praise the Lord, okay? You don't have to be joyful about that. You can be like, ah, I'm not happy. And God would be like, that's fine. Okay? Because that's not this word. That's not this word for trial. So you can be grumpy. Praise the Lord. Okay. So Mark 13's out. You can be grumpy about going to court. Okay. Acts chapter 23, verse 6, which is a different word for trial. It's experiment to prove good or evil. For the, long, for the longest time in my life, and you think good or evil in terms of, you know, no, good or evil in a broad sense. There is the good or evil in terms of like, you know, godly Satan, that extreme. But there's also, this is also used in, I found it interesting, in Greek culture, it's used for like determining whether like milk is bad. For the first 35 years of my life, I could not smell. I met a doctor who hooked me up down in Arkansas uh, with uh, a nasal steroid and I could smell. <sighs> it's wonderful. But for the first 35 years, I could not smell which presented problems because I would get up, I'd be there, couldn't be on the couch doing something. I'd open the fridge and you got that much milk left and it's right on the due date, you know, you don't call it a due date, expiration date. (laughs) It looked like it's about to give birth. But the point is, is it's right on the expiration date, okay? You open it up and you're thinking, hey, it's on the expiration. I said, Corinda, is this good? And Corinda would say, smell it. I'm like, you know, 13 years we've been married, okay? I cannot smell and so I, I had to, uh, hey, I had to put it to trial, okay? And I used to be, well, I got to be happy about this. Praise the Lord. <laughs> woo <Woo-hoo>, You know? <laughs> now I know I don't have to be. Now I can go, ah! Okay? Because that's not our word. Really didn't have much to do with the sermon, but that's good stuff. Acts chapter 16, verse 37. Uh, you know this story, Paul and Silas in pr- prison, an illegal public trial. That's not the word that James uses. If you are being exploited, put on trial falsely, you don't have to be happy about that. You don't have to smile. Hallelujah. Okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. This is one of my favorite. Harassment and oppression. I hear people say, I'm going under such trial. My boss is a, not a nice man. He's exploiting me. But I have to go and say, oh, you know, take out the trash. Praise the Lord. You know, and they're, they're really happy. But, yay, that's not the word. This is huge. Listen to this. That, that's not the word he uses either. Okay? Harassment, oppression. The next one is for 2 Corinthians 8, 2. There are trials. All of these can be translated trial. 2 Corinthians 8, 2, affliction, desire, and sickness. You know? Okay? I've got a terrible rash. Hallelujah. No, you don't. Hey, you don't have to be that. The only word in James' context is, listen, James says, consider this. I'm commanding you. Think this through, okay? This is, oh, this is what we're excited about. When you face 
trials of a variety of kinds. The Greek word there, trial, is literally translated proving ground or to prove something. It literally means, and again, it's, it flows right with the emphasis. You're going to hear this all week. You with me? You're going to hear this all week. That the emphasis is not on the actions. The emphasis is on who you are. And the trial is literally, here's a little translation of this. Listen to this. To try to learn the nature or character of something by submitting such to thorough and exhaustive testing. So this word for trial literally means who are you when it really comes, not what you do, but who are you? What makes you tick? What drives you? That's, that's the emphasis. He says that's what we're discovering. And again, I don't, man, I hope you're getting this because when we come in and sit, I'm making a diligent effort when we come in and sit in this room to say, Jesus, I'm not interested in curbing activities, curbing responses, saying the right thing. I want to be legitimately inspected this week. Inner confines of my heart stuff. In fact, that's what I'm really into. Global church stuff. He says, this is what we get excited about. Consider this. I'm commanding you. Consider this. Consider this. Trials that reveal who you are. Now, what's interesting is the trials of many kinds <laughs> can be a lot of different things. Oftentimes, my wife and I, our trials are kids. <laughs> our kids. It's amazing what kids will reveal in you. Okay? Stuff you had no idea was there. I mean, you got them by the pants and the head, and they're, I mean, out the window, and you're thinking, wow, I didn't know that was capable of that, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. They had people that, um, you know, made a big tussle with their wife. It's my wife. She's actually a blessing because she's the event where we see what you really look like because she squeezed that out of you. Seriously, it makes you reconsider some things. Because it's not the outside activity that needs to be tweaked or changed or, the, or even the context. It's who you are. This is a neat illustration I heard. You might have said this about 70 or 80 years ago, but it was this, uh, <laughs> no, you gave it during our, our training. You gave it, I think, during our summer, I think. It might not have been you. But it's this professor who brings in um, two glasses. One has water in it and one doesn't have water. You've used this, haven't you? <laughs> Was it one glass? Okay, this is different. And uh, um, this professor brings in two glasses. One has water. One doesn't have water. Okay? And he, he tells you, he tells someone in the, in, in the class, come up and uh, shake my hand. And the students are thinking, he's holding a glass of water. And the students are thinking, I don't want to do this. Water's going to go everywhere. And he says, come on, shake my hand or I'll fail you. And so the student comes up, grabs his arm, and shakes his hand. What happens? Water goes everywhere. But then he asks the students, you know, why did water go everywhere? And they all say, because he shook your hand. So he sets down the glass. You could probably do it with one glass. And he picks up the other glass, okay? <laughs> and he says, <laughs> focus, focus. And he says, shake my hand. Will they do so? And did any water go out? No. See, the reason water went everywhere is because there was water in the glass. So it's not your... Think that through. It's, it's not your context. It's not your, it's not your circumstances. It's, I mean, is there water in the glass or is there not water in the glass? I mean, four hours sleep, seven hours sleep, okay? 
Rush hour traffic, no rush hour traffic. You're looking at each other. <laughs> I see this. That, that's the issue, okay? Trials. Now he moves into verse 3 and he says, because you know that the testing, same word, of your faith, which is your dependence and your trust, we're going to explore that later, okay, develops perseverance, okay? Who you really are, okay, develops, there's this perseverance in your life. And he gets really strong on it at the beginning of verse 4. He says, perseverance must finish its work so that, and that's a little bit confusing, but because you think, okay, uh, perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete. No, the idea is, is that you will never be, you will never, ever, 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 ever persevere unless you are the real thing. You can only fake it so long. Seriously, sooner or later, the real you is going to come out. Sooner or later, someone's going to catch your perspective. They're going to catch what you're looking at. We were all watching TV last night, and they had this whole deal on the guy that had the girls captive for 10 years. And we was all talking. That he hid that for 10 years, but he made a mistake. Sooner, sooner or later, the real, real you is going to get out. And, and, and repentance and, and, and responding at the altar oftentimes come from embarrassment, you know, rather than true repentance. Does that make sense? Someone sees the real you. If you're not the real, I mean, what, wouldn't it be something? Wouldn't it be something if you were like the real deal, like the martyrs? Been so intrigued with the martyrs. We think that we hear the term Christian martyr, which martyr is, a, the translation of martyr is witness, which is not a verb. <laughs> it's not about talking, okay? But we think of martyrs and we think of, oh, dying for your faith, and that's so not true, okay? If you're a Christian, likely... Okay, if you're the real deal, you're a martyr. You're like, hold on, I haven't died for my faith. The definition of a martyr is not one who dies for their faith. It's that death does not deter their witness. It's even death doesn't change them. Because the issue is, is how do you change who you are? I'm going to kill you. That doesn't change. Unless you stop being human, I'm going to nail you to a cross. I'm in trouble. Because it's who I am. It wasn't like extreme discipline that carried them through burning alive on a stake. That's not discipline kind of stuff. They were absolutely saturated and consumed by the message, consumed by him. And they persevered. Of course, the answer to this or the question that you need to ask yourself is where in your life are you not persevering? Oftentimes we say, well, I've been falling here, but I know what I need to do. I need to get a better password on my computer. <laughs> okay, get a better password. But the computer's not the problem. Well, I just need to stop going to Jimmy's house. That's what it is, Uncle Jimmy. No, yeah, stay away from Uncle Jimmy. But Uncle Jimmy's not the problem. My wife's not convinced that I was not an alcoholic. I don't think I was. I think I was a drunk. It's different. And... Uh, for like 10 years of my life, I literally, I was drunk every single day. And there's been times when people say, well, there's going to be alcohol there. Are you going to be okay? I'm like, I might flip out and start just slamming kegs any second. Okay? No. So I'm different, man. I'm, I'm different. I'm delivered. I'm delivered. I'm changed. 
Where are you not changed? Where would you be willing this evening to say, Jesus, I am tired of looking like this. It's not, I'm, not, I'm not tired of people seeing me like this. If you're like me, really don't care your perspective. I'm tired of looking like this. I'm tired of looking in the mirror and seeing this kind of a person. I don't... Because it's been proved. I know who I am. He's shown me right in my face. I want to be completely perfect. I want to be different. Jesus, we love you this evening. Father, I remember it was strong on my mind when we came tonight. The training camps of days gone by where, I mean, literally, I mean, it spread like wildfire. It was like, and it was weird because it was even, it really didn't even matter who was preaching. It was like there was this divine movement of God among us. And, and all of us preachers have been talking about it, Jesus. I, I want to return to those days I, I, where people are, are, are not just encouraged and they have new tools. And, and, but we want to be, be different. We want to be so have such a brick wall crash kind of a moment in our life where we walk out of here and we've lost the color in our faces and we're pale and, and sick to our stomach and, and things have got, and we got to tell somebody and it's, I, I'm, I'm sick and I will never be the same the rest of my life, Jesus. We, we need that kind of, we want to be completely perfect. We want your spirit moving and shaping us from the inside. I ask in the name of your son, Father, I ask that you would move I ask that you would get aggressive. I ask that you would overshadow. I ask you would stir our hearts, that you would confront, that you would get aggressive, that you would take your word and brand it in our hearts. Speak to us boldly, Jesus, this week. Challenge us. Be crystal clear in our eyesight. Pray that, Father, you would anoint the worship and anoint the preaching that follows, that we may hear your voice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.